0: to Mose Allison, and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store.
1: I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you
0: how the world is wrong. The world is wrong
2: chameleon street
0: no chameleon street
2: chameleon street there we go chameleon street
0: (laughs) no chameleon street okay that's what this happens that's how we're going to start this that's just how we're going to start it it's it's the trading places trading places thing all over again Welcome to the World Is Wrong podcast, an extremely positive podcast where we champion films the world is wrong about. I'm one of your hosts, and my name is Andros Jones.
2: And I'm Brian Connolly, the other host.
0: Yes, you are. And uh, we're gonna be talking about a film called <laughs> Chameleon Street. Uh,
2: let me get it. I can do it, I can do it. Because I keep saying it like it's a street, but it's a person's. It's like a person's name. Yeah, Chameleon Street. Chameleon Street. Chameleon, Chameleon street. street. Yes, a film called Chameleon <laughs>
0: Street, and uh, and I picked this film. And just so you know what, what I was ta- obviously you know what I'm. Do I have to explain the trading places trading places thing?
2: Yeah, explain it because I was confused at, at first. Because you like I've never really. I, I just kind of say words randomly without thinking about it. And I, I should not do that, I guess. I should be more mindful. But you're trading and trade. And that's an interesting movie to talk about. We're not going to. But yeah, explain to me because I always thought it was trading places because they're two guys and they're swapping their roles in life. And one was poor and one's rich. And now it's the other way around. Well, so but you just said places. it. But
0: <laughs> yeah. That, okay. Yeah. It's trading places. That's how people who worked on the film. But that's how that's how John Landis says it in interviews. Trading places. Because they are trading places in trading places. And the focus is on class and money. You can see from the poster, it's all about class and money. And it's trading places. And it, it's a it's a pretty clever pun that l- goes away if you call the film Trading Places, which is like, oh, because they're trading places. Oh, it doesn't matter. It takes out all... Then it makes it just like a... You know, like...
2: 18 again.
0: <laughs> Freaky Friday. And anyway, so Trading Places is about... This all happens among this world of big money and what really is important in a person's character and who who is really... Qual- is it really a meritocracy that puts Dan Aykroyd at the top of that chain and keeps Eddie Murphy from the top of that chain? And of course, Eddie Murphy was clearly his character. Anyway, that, that uh, that's all that all came about because this film Chameleon Street is uh is one of those films that it yeah, plays on a a funny like there's a, a there's also a pun in it. Like you have to cross like a street is like you have to cross Chameleon Street to be Chameleon Street. And uh, so <laughs> Oh, boy. Let me just uh, play a clip from the film, and then I'll tell you about it.
1: Some people call me Mr. Wonderful. Other people call me Wonderful close friends call me... Doug. Yeah. Yeah, they call me that too. William Douglas Street Jr. Born in a log cabin in the backwoods of Kentucky, young Douglas soon elevated himself from field hand to tiger, from tiger to reporter, and from reporter to doctor, from doctor to co-ed, from co-ed to attorney, from attorney to congressman. From congressman to president. I could play president. Doug. Uh There's a state marshal in the outer office
3: asking for you. He has 30 armed policemen with him.
1: (laughs) You are joking. No. Yes, Mary? Mr. Street, there are several gentlemen here to see you. Where's his office? I'll be right out.
0: Okay, so, Chameleon Street is the first and only film from writer, actor, director Wendell B. Harris. It's the true-ish story of William Douglas Street Jr., a notoriously beloved or belovedly notorious con man from Michigan, who gained a certain notoriety based upon a series of sports related cons in the late 1960s and early 70s, including a ham fisted blackmail attempt aimed at Detroit Tigers outfielder Willie Horton in 1971. <laughs> Street blazed through the 70s and 80s, enjoying the anonymity of a pre-internet age, as he impersonated a series of athletes, journalists, doctors, and lawyers. He is said to have conducted as many as 36 hysterectomies as he bounced from jail to Yale and back again. While Harris's film adopts William Douglas Street Jr.'s story, Harris's Douglas Street is a vehicle for some very angry comedy exploring the life of a black intellectual in America. Whether it's when his character impresses the head of a hospital he's trying to convince to hire him by solving a Rubik's Cube, or when he passes himself off as a French foreign exchange student at Yale after breaking out of prison by simply saying j'accuse before a litany of French names.
1: J'accuse la J'accuse, j'accuse Jacques Bret. j'accuse Jacques Cousteau, j'accuse Jacques Trapp, j'accuse Jacuzzi, j'accuse Brigitte Margot, j'accuse Pierre Salonger. What the hell is he talking about?
0: Or when he toasts a table of white lawyers for their savagery.
1: If you're interested, I can get you a free guest pass. Oh no. I was just doing a little research. On are five. white people. It amazes me that whites avidly seek after all the accoutrements of black style. You pickle your bodies in gallons of tanning lotion, you broil your pale flesh brown in the tanning spas at great expense, and all the while maintaining such marvellous contempt for black people. You wily Caucasians. tell you, you were phenomenal you absolutely were phenomenal well I, I i love the way you handled those corporate attorneys four corporate attorneys four, like a pro four count them four like a pro and uh i really like the eye-to-eye contact very impressive that's all part of people's culture very right? impressive
0: the very vulgarity of his con conveys harris's contempt for his marks and this conveys the film's contempt for some parts of its audience When W.C. Fields or Bill Murray pulls this trick and flaunt their contempt for convention, it comforts the status quo. Not so with Chameleon Street, and I wonder why. Chameleon Street won the Sundance Film Festival Grand Jury Prize in 1990, and legend has it that It or its director slash star offended some major players in Hollywood so badly that it assured Harris would never really work in Hollywood again, other than small parts in Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight and in the movie Road Trip. I'll admit upon my first watch, the film did not make me feel very comfortable. I recognized it was great, but I don't think it's supposed to make me comfortable. And uh, I've watched it about three times now, and there is a lot in it that really sticks with me and that I'm looking forward to talking about. Not only with you, Brian, but I also recorded an interview with a filmmaker named Skinner Myers who introduced me to this film and I think has his own uh, sort of rigorous take on it, which I'm looking forward to sharing with you and the listeners. But, uh, you know, after watching Chameleon Street, I'm just, as a... as. It, it stands out as a great first film from somebody who I wish I got to see more films from. So that is... Yeah. Uh, that's Chameleon Street.
2: So how is the world wrong about Chameleon Street?
0: Oh, boy. Well, no one has seen it. I mean, and unlike <laughs> with the film we spoke about last week, U.S. Go Home, there isn't as easy a reason. And uh, the director of this film didn't get to go on and and make many more, as Claire Denis has. So I think based upon how much the film antagonizes whiteness Mm
2: -hmm.
0: in a way that, I don't know, uh, other films that are antagonistic to the status quo might be but the angle on this i can see how that and then that it's the actor the director who's in it playing this character so it's not just it's it's not at any remove if he like if that guy walked into meetings with people holding the prejudices that hollywood held in 1989 i could see that rubbing people the wrong way obviously soderbergh you know, recognizes him and respects him because, uh, he, he included him in, uh, his film out of sight. Um, yeah. but I feel like, and Skinner gets into this in our conversation. I feel like clearly mm-hmm. one of the ways the world is wrong about this film has to do some, in some way with racism and white supremacy yeah. in Hollywood then and now. And yeah, we, we, that's something we can recognize, but I'm really glad. That's why I, I tagged in uh, Skinner to help us speak to it directly <laughs> in a way that allows that conversation to to happen. But what I one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about because you're a connoisseur of what I consider, a, you know, odd, oddly toned, particularly comedy (laughs) like we were talking about heartbeeps in our last episode and that's like a a comedy that has a really odd tone to it and this is a comedy (laughs) that has a very odd tone you know and it's I feel like it's really like bitingly savagely funny and I think maybe that's one of the things that was the hurdles to me to watch it to my pleasure in it the first time was I was once I got what it was doing I'm happy to play the straight guy to this film that this film is making fun of like it's like, it made me think of like the way that like I can watch a, a film like Bridesmaids and I was raised by women who made jokes about men so I know how to be the butt of that joke yeah and it's something about this film I had to like He's so angry at the butt of this joke that it's hard to let yourself <laughs> step into that place, but maybe in the way that like people had a hard time getting real like Albert Brooks's comedy the first time that they saw it, yeah, if they weren't on the inside of it. like I always felt on the inside of Albert Brooks's comedy, but if I yeah. didn't feel on the inside of it and I watched real life, I'd just be like, "Ooh, that guy's an asshole." Oh) <laughs> but it's so if you if you can get the poetry of that as like sort of the oscar wildness of it then you're like oh (laughs) oh this misanthrope is someone who i like is wc fields i love this go yes tear everyone apart in your movie
2: (laughs) and i think the 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 race part of it is probably why it was harder for some people because i think with albert brooks I mean, you, it's sort of, like, easier maybe for people to digest because they're like, oh, he's just some wise guy, okay. And he's not really pushing, like, in real life, which was the first movie where we saw him play this kind of wise guy uh, character, He he's pushing buttons, but he's not pushing buttons that would make people with money in Hollywood squirm as much. It's like, you know, like, you're making fun of, like, reality TV, documentary, like, sort of... Uh, you know, like the the intrusive filmmaker, but like this movie, Chameleon, Chameleon. I'm going to say it right, Chameleon <laughs> Street. Uh, this, it's pushing buttons because it's an angrier movie. Like Real Life is a fun movie about a jerky guy, whereas this movie is 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 more venomous. You know, it, there's definitely more. Uh, anger that character characters feeling that I think maybe the filmmaker is feeling. And you brought, you brought up an interesting point earlier. Like if Wendell B Harris Jr. Had just made this movie, but didn't play the star, I think he would have been making more movies. I think that it is hard for people when you put yourself in your own movie to kind of separate that, like you're playing a character. Like this is probably not how Wendell B Harris Jr. is because he's, he's acting But like you said, if this is all you've ever seen him in, and this was the only thing people had ever seen him in, and he walks in your door to get money, you're kind of like, wait a minute, is this guy going to con me? Because that's what he did in that movie he made. Like, wait a minute, is he a jerk? Like, But no, he's just acting in this movie.
0: (laughs) 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 Yes, and I know what it's like to walk into a meeting and blow it because you feel or because you act like you're smarter than the people you're talking to. Yeah. It's an it's a youthful, arrogant actor'y thing to do, yeah, or director artisty thing to do, and I am de- I've definitely been guilty of it in my time, and I am and I was not going, coming up against the prejudices that someone like him would come up into. I feel like, mm-hmm. in a way, like that's the, in the way that like. Bill Murray the way he gets to act in a movie like Ghostbusters is a or yeah. Stripes or something like that is a kind of wish fulfillment like in if he if someone was in the army and acted like Bill Murray did in Stripes he would be out of the army or, or i guess based <laughs> upon like the, some of the things we you know maybe they make him a general i don't know um, yeah. <laughs> but thing there's a wish fulfillment to that kind of comedy that i get to be an asshole and get away with it And I think that's part of the fun that it took me a second watching to get of this is that like, oh, I'm not actually the target of this, his humor, because I relate to his humor because I know what it's like to feel or I know what it's like to want to be able to just come in to a meeting and tell someone the truth and have them be like, oh, okay well, we'll make you a doctor instead of get the (laughs) fuck out of our office, which is what they probably said to him. Even before he walked into the office because yeah. of a lot... I think that there's just a thing of like, in Hollywood, I just don't want to deal with anything that's difficult. And clearly, yeah. working... What what Wendell B. Harris made was a difficult movie that is saying, I want to be difficult. And when, yeah. when Albert Brooks says, I want to be difficult, or when Steven Soderbergh says he wants to be difficult... They get to make more movies because we're interested. And I just feel like the audience just hadn't been created yet. the the, the aware you know, there was as Skinner goes into, there is a uh, a system of white supremacy that exists and mm-hmm. seriously existed then. And a film like this, when you look at it from the standpoint of that it's not the and again, it's not the effrontery to the audience, but it's the effrontery to the person you want to give you the next three million dollars or eight million or ten million dollars to make your next movie you just won yeah. the award at Sundance you feel like you should be able to walk into the room and be confident and be like yeah, yeah I have an idea for the next movie and this is what it is and if you're what what was Soderbergh's follow-up was it was a was that Kafka no what was his it was f- Kafka yeah, yeah. okay yeah. so like that's pretty, that's super pretentious. And, <laughs> and you know, imagine that if Wendell B. Harris walked in with the same amount of pretension and confidence and swagger, he probably was yeah. met with a different energy from the people who were there. So I feel like that's, and that, but also that drives the angry humor of the film. So like if we take the sad story that we didn't get to see this out of it, and we just look at it more as a Wellesian swipe, where he gets, he got, yeah. he made one film, and it says something. You know, yeah. it it says a lot of things, and that's kind of what I want to talk about. Let's talk about some of the great things in this movie, and then we can talk about some of the criticism that uh sure. that surrounds this movie if you look it up online. But like I said, the reason I shared it with you is because I think because I just I feel like you have a. You have a differently attuned sense of comedy than I do.
2: I, re- I think this movie plays into what I like about a lot of comedies, that, uh, a lot of slapstick comedies, is so many of these old comedies are about so and so, insert name of comedian here, getting a job, fucking that job up. You know, like they get you hired the Three Stooges as plumbers, but they don't know how to be a plumber. Or you hired Jerry Lewis to be your bellhop or to be like, he's gonna like, and he doesn't know what he's doing. And this movie has fun with this idea of like this guy being inserted in all these different jobs, all these roles. And like, because like this is based on a true story and it could have been done as a total drama, could have been like real life where it's, it could have been more like a catch me if you a, can. Yeah, catch me if you can about like, here's a con artist doing all these different things. Like, isn't this interesting? But instead, it's playing it. Almost like those old comedies where it's like, well, what if Charlie Chaplin was working in the factory? Like, what's he going to do? Like, not necessarily do it wrong, but do it so differently that it's going to kind of fuck with the system. You know, it's going to fuck it up. And like, I love the bet. like, I love the part in this movie when he's the doctor and he's like, well, you got to tell a lot of lame jokes and you got to, and then the part where he's like, he's trying to help pretend to help the lady. And then she repulses him and he kind of jumps, he kind of jumps, almost falls to the ground. He just like, ah, and like breaks his character of the doctor. And that's so good. (laughs) And it reminds me of, there's a little scene, very unliked possible future episode for us of a Jerry Lewis movie called hardly working. And it's sort of not quite the same premise, but it's like Jerry Lewis is this guy who's unhappy with his life, and it's him just trying different jobs. And the movie, like Chameleon Street, has this sort of sketch comedy feel to it in a way where every 10 minutes it kind of turns into a different movie as Jerry Lewis is trying all these different jobs. But because it's Jerry Lewis, it's him like bumbling and setting things on fire and breaking it, whereas in Chameleon Street, it's more like him kind of in the inside kind of messing with it and also trying to really and doing a good job a lot of the time passing for these these roles but then always at the end kind of getting caught and having to sneak away to the next the next bit
0: yeah i i knew you'd get that part of the things now i have a couple (laughs) of questions what what did you think about the filmmaking style yeah it's obviously a first film. He's working with what he has. There's there's a few places, a few scenes like the that, that are that take place in the bar at the beginning when they're coming up for, with the initial plot to blackmail Willie Horton which is so it's just like it's not even it's one of those great things that's like so doomed from the beginning like the film is is not trying to convince you that this is going to be some great idea. Uh, And then it has this wild shift in tone where all of a sudden he's kind of a celebrity. And the way the film conveys that, I think is really interesting. But some of the stuff in the bar, like he'll have whole scenes where his character's face is in shadow.
2: Yeah. Almost even off screen.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. Like so in shadow that it's like, that you just like, you can see all the other characters and he's just darkness. And yeah. the first time that happens, you think, OK, well, that's either that's like a stylistic thing or that's a little bit of a mistake. But then there's a whole scene where it's like that. And that's. Yeah. Uh, and what do you make of that? You obviously noticed it as I did. I think it's just like I, what's interesting about this movie and I think what separates it
2: from like a sex, lies in videotape or other indie movies of the time is this movie is not just an independent movie. But it's a very experimental movie. Like it doesn't work in the normal narrative structure that you would, like that even sex life and videotape work. Like sex life and videotape works like a normal movie. Like it looks like a normal movie. It has that indie feel to it. But like a regular person could watch that movie and kind of get what it is, and and they did. Whereas this movie really kind of leans more into. I don't want to say student film because that sounds like a diss, but it has that experimental kind of non-narrative film quality to it in terms of how the narration is used and, and how time is used. And like and then the shots, it's like, this movie is a comedy, but also you're going to have these weird shots where he's blacked out or he's kind of like non-existent. And maybe it's sort of like, you know, maybe it's kind of giving the idea of like, he doesn't have his own character. He's not himself. He is this chameleon who has to constantly change. So when he's between these moments of coming up with a new persona, he is non-existent. Like he's no one will notice him. Like he's not even there until he shows up dressed as a doctor or whatever. Or yeah, a lawyer or whatever. You know,
0: there's a later scene where that. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about at the very end where the it, the film takes a really drastic tonal change, and he does that in this tiny mask that yeah. maybe functions in the similar way that the that shadow and i guess yeah. that's yeah. The, the film invites you to watch so again this is a film about this guy who is an extremely intellectual character and he's not his character is not a parody of the intellectual i mean he he's not he, frazier <laughs> no yeah he feels more like ja- like james baldwin or like or like uh, William F. Buckley, like this just sneering intelligence. And he's quoting Oscar Wilde and he's going to see Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. It feels very much like Mm -hmm. a Woody Allen film in that way about Mm -hmm. sort of, I don't know, bragging about the literary and intellectual references in a way Mm -hmm. that, again, that flatters the audience, that flatters the intellectual audience. And I think also yeah. maybe just for people, as someone who has pitched a lot of projects in Hollywood where people said, well, that's just too smart. People in America won't yeah. go for that. That might also be one of the ways the world was wrong about this. Like, they were just like, there isn't an audience for smart films by <laughs> black people, you know, and you're like... Yeah. Or, and, obvi- well, I think they're... I'm, I think there's still room for a film like this to have its moment because I think it does. I think on that level, I just that's part of the fun of it, just like with a Woody Allen film. Like if you get the references and then you get how he plays with them, it's just Mm -hmm. uh, it's just very exciting. So anyway, what one of my favorite scenes is just at the beginning. There's a scene that feels like very like 1970s cinema where he's Mm -hmm. in the van with his friend waiting for for his dad he's working for his dad's burglar alarm business and they're just sitting in the car smoking cigarettes and talking about like just doing some funny dialogue about we didn't go on a honeymoon we went on a money moon (laughs) (laughs) what's a money moon (laughs) let me just play that clip
1: so did y'all have a honeymoon man no we had a money moon a money moon, what's that? A money moon is where instead of getting your own place and traveling somewhere far away, you stay at my parents' house and travel over to the mall and open charge accounts in Neiman Marcus, Bond with Tellers, and Saks Fifth Avenue. A money moon.
2: <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it has that good sort of like indie film hangback quality where like you just kind of, like in a lot of 80s, indie movies have that, Like, especially Jim Jarmusch, where you're just sort of like sitting back and just watching this moment with these people. And there's like what you're kind of like, it's like you're hanging out in the van while these people are having this very natural conversation.
0: Yeah. So I feel like it's really important to know this. I went and researched it. The most outlandish parts of this story are all true. Yeah. This is a biopic. Like, yeah. he, He did. And they also sprinkle in actual people who were. Yeah who are actual figures like the the basketball star that he interviews that woman is actually was actually a uh, Paula McGee she's a professional basketball player and so she's not yeah. a great, necessarily a great actress. And I wasn't even aware that she was like on the first viewing. I wasn't. A, I didn't have the. I wasn't able to make the cultural reference. And so I didn't get what was going on there. That there was this whole F for Fake aspect of. Okay, I'm going to start. So this is a biopic about a real thing, and I'm going to bring in real people, and now we're really going to start muddying the waters of what's real. And most, and a lot of the audience, the white audience isn't even going to get a lot of the references that I'm making. Yeah. Right. Uh, Then it just basically catalogs it. And we get to see him be a sports journalist and how he does that. And we get to see him be a, uh, a doctor. And there are like, there are stories again, I don't know. I'm going off of Wikipedia and other podcasts that I've listened to. There's an episode about, where they tell the William Douglas Street Jr. story on an episode of a podcast called Swindled and I'll put the link in the show notes for that and so that story about like they do a, they make it into it's into comedy when he's in he's told to come and check out a woman for some problem in the scene you referenced earlier and he immediately runs yeah. to the bathroom and takes out his medical <laughs> book and starts looking up that problem. <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> it's really good I, I I think my favorite bit is when he goes to college. I think that yeah is the funniest part of the movie when he when he
0: when he breaks out of jail <laughs> and then immediately goes to New Haven <laughs> and cons his way into yale as a for, a French foreign exchange student and he's at a- there's a scene with him at a party and he's trying to impress everyone, but he's just
2: saying like French words. <laughs> and adding la in front of it. And and it's really good. And then of course he's challenged by an actual French exchange student. (laughs) It's, it's that part is great. And just the idea of him just like, like the thing is like all these moments could be its own movie. Like you could see a movie about like this guy pretending to be in Yale as a student, or this guy pretending to be a doctor. Like you could totally branch off from this movie and make 20 other movies just about those parts. Um, which is, I think, the fun part of those movies. You're getting like 20 fun little movies in one as he's going from role to role.
0: That's where I feel like Catch Me If You Can. Uh, they're very similar stories. And just to keep coming back to this, because it's sort of, it's unavoidable. When you think about the stories and you sort of, we've talked about Wolves of Wall Street. When we think about the stories, we hear about the stories of these criminals in these stories, they usually end up getting hired afterwards to work (laughs) for some, you know, to work for someone who's still in that business. This uh, William Douglas Street just kept going back to prison. He's successful because he's famous and he's pulled off some amazing stuff. But there was never a point when someone it was recognized like, hey, if you can pull off being a doctor, we better... Get you on our side to check out other fraudulent doctors. That'd be a great job for you. And he never
2: got to like be like write the book about it or like be the person on the movie set like helping. It's not like, oh, I worked on a Michael Mann movie and I was the the guy who told them how to like be a con. Like he never got that chance because he kept going to prison. Like he was he was within the last five years sentenced to a few years in prison for more. He's never. It's like a compulsion it's like, like he's still doing identity theft and still doing all this fraud in the late, like now. So he's been doing this since the 70s till now. And it's like, and the movie definitely taps into that. This movie definitely has it almost like he can't stop. It's just like a compulsion.
0: Let's talk about some of the criticism of the film. Okay, Brian? Yeah. You see, uh, I read I read online that some people are accusing the film... And by extension, it's writer, director, and star of misogyny. And I'd like to head that criticism off on a few levels. Um, And then I'll hear what you have to say about it. So, uh, first of all, the film is about a misanthrope who is openly hostile, dismissive, and cruel to pretty much everyone in the film unless he's actively lying to them. And even then he makes so little effort to sell his lies that even this comes off as hostile. Um, and this dynamic applies to white people as well as black people, men, as well as women. And to me, it would be weird if this character made any exceptions to this hostile stance toward the people in his world. So that's, that's point one. Uh, point two is that, uh, I assume the main criticism has to do with the way the Street character talks to and about his wife. And since it was Street's wife who eventually turns him in, and since the film is being told in retrospect, it makes sense that the film and the character are hostile to Street's wife. And I don't see this as being that different from the way a film about a woman who is pursuing her dream might treat the husband who doesn't get it is always telling her to be more realistic and ultimately betrays her or for that matter the way nagging wives are treated in stories about men who are portrayed as heroes in films usually white men and number 3 this film is from 1989 this is an era dripping in cinematic misogyny um Recently, I watched Days of Thunder. That film treats women terribly. <laughs> uh, Sex, Lies, in Videotape. There's criticisms to be made there. Pretty much every Farrelly Brothers movie should be <laughs> talked about as a misogynistic uh, film if we're going to be talking about this film, holding this film accountable for that. And considering all the hurdles that Chameleon Street and its creator faced... And the daring and important statement that it's making about race, I think that scapegoating it for the misogyny of the era is unfair and way too close to the way black men have been held to an insane standard of purity when it comes to their relationships with women, while white men and the films they make get a pass. I mean, I just watched Goonies for the first time, and that film is full of toxic masculinity and fat shaming from children. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone mention this in their nostalgia for Richard Donner's film. (laughs) So uh, for all of these reasons, and while I acknowledge that it's important for men in particular to be thoughtful and sensitive when confronted with observations about patriarchy and misogyny. I consider the concerns about this film's misogyny to be a misguided distraction and I think it's also a way to justify ignoring the film without having to address the racism the film is aiming at. I mean, we're about to do an episode about James Bond, and I'm pretty sure we're going to use the word misogyny <laughs> less in that episode and he's a... than, we ha- than we are in this. And that just that seems like a, a weird double standard. So those are my reasons why I say we should not be talking about misogyny when we're talking about this film unless we're talking about the misogyny of the era. Like this film, I don't think it's worse than a lot of other movies. So, yeah, that's my take. I will shut up now. <laughs> What do you have to say, Brian? <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> it's funny. It's funny because I uh, I was watching this movie with a woman who couldn't finish watching the movie because she was so upset by how he treated <laughs> the women in the movie, and she didn't know about this history of critics and people online accusing the film of being uh, misogynistic. So that, <laughs> and she was just like, "Why is this guy being a jerk to his wife? Why is he, you know?" Disgusted with her getting more dessert. Why later on in the hospital does he have to mention that he's grossed out by a patient's stretch marks? And it was just sort of like, I don't like this guy. I'm not going to finish this movie. <laughs> and and I, and I I I I you know I'm not a lady. I don't know what it feels like to hear these things. Like I and I kind of felt bad because I was watching it, being like, oh, this guy's a jerk. This is great. And then, <laughs> and I was like, oh, maybe I should have thought. Uh, be a little more sensitive about that but I mean, I, I agree with you I think it's unfair to accuse this, this movie of being misogy- misogynistic and I don't even think the character of Street is, I think he's a jerk to a lot of people for sure, and he's definitely blunt with how he shares his anger and frustration especially towards his wife which makes sense because that's the person that he's supposedly closest to um, and and it's totally unfair to label this movie uh, misogynistic in the same way that it would be like uh, to accuse a movie of like you know like loving violence because there's a really violent scene in the movie uh, if it, if it's done tastefully and done to tell the story and I think in this movie it is it's not an easy movie this movie's not given to you in an easy way and I think it's the yeah, I wonder if it's because he's a true total filmmaker people think that this is his actual opinion on women when it's just the way he's treating his wife in the movie. I don't, I don't think that he's this way in real life. Maybe his, I don't know, but I think it's stupid to accuse a movie of such a thing when you, yeah. Like you said, you wouldn't do that to like a Judd Apatow movie. You wouldn't be like Seth Rogen must really hate women. They're always ruining his fun. Like he must be a jerk, but, but we don't
0: think that. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, well, I'm, I'm, I agree. And also now that you've told me your story, it's sort of like it's hard to like if if someone has an experience of feeling attacked by the film, that's an undeniable reality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are some Jewish stereotypes in the film that I I just I guess I just let pass. But in another film, maybe a film I was less sympathetic to, I think I might have been more hostile towards that. So, yeah, Well, you know what, let's just, uh, we're going to go to the interview with Skinner Myers, and he has a lot of interesting things to say about this. But before that, I think I'll just play a scene and uh, trigger warning. Pretty much everything we've talked about just in this little bit of talking about this film, it's all expressed there. If you are troubled by racism, you're going to hear some racism. If you're troubled by body shaming and misogyny you're going to be troubled by what you're about to hear (laughs) and if you don't like uh, profanity, well (laughs) you're listening to the wrong podcast you (laughs) fuckers (laughs) okay, let's roll the tape let's do it I'd like another Nickelodeon light Mm
1: -hmm. and do you want anything else? yes, um, two pieces of compound, please two? will there be anything else? she also wants one lifetime charge account at Lane Bryant Yes, thank you. I thought you were going to watch your figure. <laughs> I am. Watching it get big. <laughs> you know, when you really think about it, you're the one responsible for my overeating. Um. You put me on a lot of strain with what you've been doing. Mm, well, you know, if I'd wanted to marry a big, fat, greasy, chocolate donut-eating hostess, a cupcake, twinkie, lard, elbow woman, I could have married Joyce. If I ever got that big, there'd just be that much, much more, more i <laughs> All right. Well? Baby, I would divorce you so quick, your head would spin. You wouldn't. Mm. Would you really? Well, why don't you put on 50 pounds and find out? You're awful. Awesome. My little man. You want a And two pieces of pecan pie. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Excuse me. I was just sitting over there admiring your dress. Thank you. It's nice to see some class in this dump. Don't you know Mclob is for white men? And you know that the white man runs this world. What, is that what it says on the label? How much? How much what? Much what? Come on, cut the comedy. Bitch is (laughs) fine. And I'm willing to pay through the nose when the ass has got class. Honey, come on, take a drink here. Come on. You know what I mean? Porch monkey? You did say more funky. That is what he said, isn't it? More funky, not porch monkey. More funky. Hey, hey, why don't you get around? Okay, what are you crazy? Nigga. Get your nasty black hands off of me. He he thinks he can just like come in here and fucking let go! You know, that's a very nasty word. But what's really, pardon the expression, fucked up, is your grammar. Fucking let go. You can't say that. You know, the rules of grammar apply to profanity as well. The word fuck comes from the German root "ficken," which means to strike. It's a verb and can be used in a variety of ways, both transitive and intransitive. For example, simple aggression. Fuck you. Or simple confusion. What the fuck is going on here? And then there's apathy. Who gives a fuck? And then there's ignorance, which is very appropriate for you. Marty. Marty. Oh, fuck. Call the police. I can deal with this asshole. Yeah, yeah, sure. Defiance. The fuck you can. I ain't gonna take this shit from you. Authority. Shut the fuck up. And you can say it four different ways. Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. I see, these are all the things you could have said if you weren't so unbelievably coarse and crude and countrified. That's alliteration, babe. I mean, remember, Peckerwood. Profanity is the last refuge of the ignorant, the insensitive, and the illiterate. But if you're gonna use it, and I can see you are, at least get the fucking grammar right, moron.
3: (laughs) Ah! Let's see your muscles, steady your mouth. Come on, boy, get
1: up. Instant replay. Dumb broad asked me the other day, why didn't you punch out that of wood? I said because I was unconscious, you extremely stupid bitch. I had so many bruises on my face. For my next role, I had to use a little bit of makeup.
0: And here we are, talking on August 22nd, 2020. I don't know if the date necessarily matters so much, but I'm so used to saying that when I do the Radio 8 Ball show. But we're hanging out here with the guy who introduced me to Chameleon Street. I wonder if I would have ever crossed Chameleon Street if it weren't for this man mentioning him to me. We are here with filmmaker... and and professor of film and a former client of mine and a uh, friend and collaborator of mine, the director of The Sleeping Negro. Welcome to the World is Wrong podcast, Skinner Myers.
3: Happy to be here. Thank you for having me, man.
0: Yeah, Yeah,
3: always good to talk with you.
0: It's We always have great film conversations, and one of them <laughs> led to you recommending this film, Chameleon Street, to me, and I had never heard of it before. And you told what was a, a tremendously compelling story. And so rather than me trying to repeat that story, I figured I'd just let you share that with our listeners. So tell us, tell us, uh, Professor Myers, about mm-hmm. uh, about Chameleon Street.
3: So, Chameleon Street um, was a film that was made in '89. It was written, directed, and starred Wendell B. Harris Jr. Uh, Wendell B. Harris Jr. had uh, went to Juilliard and um, was, uh, you know, a trained, trained actor. Uh, wrote a lot, directed uh, stuff. And he, after Chameleon Street, uh, which we'll get into. He only appeared in two other films as an actor and um, which is a shame because he's, he was such an amazing talent. I mean, he's still alive, but um, just a shame of what happened to him and his career. But it's not surprising, right? Because of the system we live under and how Hollywood is constructed, but it was written, directed, starred Wendell B. Harris Jr. And basically it's based off a true story. Of a of a Detroit con artist, his name is William Douglas Street Jr., who successfully um, basically impersonated you know professional people, right? So he was like a lawyer. He was a reporter, um, extortionist. He was an athlete at one point. He was a surgeon. He performed a hysterectomy successfully. Um, actually, I think he performed a lot of hy- hysterectomies successfully. And eventually got caught and um, went to prison. So what's crazy is that Chameleon Street in, I want to say it was 1990. Yeah, the Sundance Film Festival in 1990. The movie won the Grand Jury Prize. And uh, a lot of people were upset about that because they wanted... I guess some of the other films that were like in competition to win, they just didn't understand this movie. They're like, it didn't look that good. Um, And just to put that in the context, here's some of the other films that won different um, prizes that year Uh, for the documentary. It was like H2 worker um, and water and power. They shared that uh, yet house party got an excellence in cinematography award. Um, Also filmmakers trophy dramatic. And then you had, a special jury recognition to sleep with anger, which is Charles Burnett, who's another amazing black filmmaker. Um, and I believe to sleep with like, people wanted to sleep with anger to get the grand jury, but chameleon street got it. And so, uh, you know, you think, Oh, you win grand jury at, um, Sundance, you're going to, all the offers are going to start coming in to you. You know, everyone's, everyone's going to want the film. And so essentially what happened was that like, no one, no one bought the film. And, um, a lot of the critics just canned it pretty hard, um, except for Armin White, uh, who currently writes for the National Review. He's a film critic. He's been around for decades. And he's usually the film critic, like if, if, if uh, the masses love a movie and it has 100% Rotten Tomatoes, like he's that one film critic who will basically just be honest about how he feels about it and take away that 100% average because he'll give it, like, a bad critique. Um, but he loved the movie, and he championed it. And he was on the grand jury uh, that year and pushed for this to win. But, um, yeah, so it, like, won Sundance, but couldn't find a home. And I believe... I could be wrong on this, because I'm just, remember, like, bringing this up from memory. But I think... Was it MGM or what? One of these studios were like, hey, we'll buy the remake rights to it. And they did that and they just shelved it. They never really actively sought to make remake rights. I I think Will Smith at one point when younger, when he was younger early in his career was trying to remake it as a lead actor, but it never worked out. And so, um, yeah, it kind of like faded from obscurity. And for a long time, you couldn't, um, find a copy of the movie, you know, couldn't get a DVD. And then, I think around 2010 it came back out in DVD and now I believe it's on Amazon Prime or you can buy it on Amazon. But it's, it's really unfortunate because for me it's like one of the, it's one of those great black art house films that just doesn't fit into any category or box ever and had so many comments on class, race identity and the maneuvering that Black people have to do to survive under a system of white supremacy, you know. Um, and Wendell was amazing in the movie.
1: Yeah.
0: So. Well, you 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 seem like you were sort of leading into how you feel like. So, how the what we're about is how the world is wrong about certain films, certain pieces mm-hmm. of art. Sometimes it's because, uh, well, there's there's lots of different reasons that. Uh, a film can not find an audience, be blocked from an audience, be you know get a get a reputation before people have seen it. Um, yep. So w- when you think of how of how the world is wrong about this particular film, it seems like there's a lot of different ways. There was what it was at, at at first, and then what it is over time. But I, I guess I'm curious about where how how did you come across it?
3: Uh, I. I, like, had, like I had heard about it, but not, I had never really done a deep, like, I never watched it, and I think it was, like, uh, two or three years ago, maybe it was three years ago, I made this movie called Frank Embry, it like, a short film of this lynching that happened in, in Missouri, and we, and we, and it won the Grand Jury Prize at this festival called Holly Shorts in L.A., but, um... I got hit up by an amazing um, artist. His name is M. Tume Gant, and he lives in New York. He's a film professor, um, MC actor, writer, director. And I think he he had hit me up on Facebook when I was on social media. He's like, hey, man, I heard you, like, won the grand jury prize. I kind of want to see what your film's about. And... He was like, I had a film there, and Holly Shorts. For those who don't know, it's a massive short film fest. It's an Academy Award uh, qualifying festival. But like, if you have a film there, it's like a ten-day festival, and um, you just don't have time to watch all five hundred short films, right? So, I had a movie called Whiteface there, but I hadn't seen it, and so we exchanged links, right? And I loved his movie. I thought it was amazing. Such, um, uh, it was just prophetic in a way. It was before Donald Trump got elected when he made the movie, but then it was played after the election. But anyways, it was a great film, and I commented. I said, dude, you're an amazing artist. I love your acting. I love what you're saying. Like it was super layered and deep. And then he had commented on um, Frank Embry. And so we, connect, we connected um, and he's a big champion of the film. Right. So like in his mentions, he had talked about it a lot. And I was like, yeah, I heard, I need to watch this movie. I got to find this movie because sometimes you, you hear about a movie and everyone loves it. And you're like, okay, let me go watch this movie. And then you can't find it. Mm-hmm. So for a while there, I couldn't find it. I was like, all right, well, I'll, hopefully it comes out. It, it gets re-released. And so, um, uh, long story short, he mentioned it and I was like, I got to watch this movie. I was in the process of writing a new project. um, and I had also, as an actor, writer, director, I was like, at some point, I'm going to make a feature. This was like back in 2018. I'm going to make a feature, and I need to like, I'm going to be in it, right? I'm going to be the lead. So I want to kind of like watch films that have done this. And so um, I, it finally came out. I was like, yo, I want to watch this movie. I watched it, and I was just like so blown away. Um, because we have to remember the time this movie was made in and what it took to get made. There's so, I mean, there's so much to talk about. But anyway, so it was basically M. who I honestly like, we have emailed each other a couple of times. Uh, we were Instagram buddies before I left Instagram. Um, and we don't, we've never met each other in real, per, in real life. We know some of the same people because, you know, filmmaking, black filmmaking circles are not that indie black filmmaking circles. Are, are, is not, he, they're not, it's not a big circle. So I know some people here who know him. And um, um, so like, he, we know of each other, but we never met. So basically the movie was reintroduced to me through some of his mentionings and I watched it and I hit him up and I was just like, yo, this is is dope. So everyone needs to watch this movie. Um, And that's kind of how I found out about it Uh, again, you know, or I was reminded of it and I bought it. It was on Amazon to buy. I bought it. And then I watched it with my wife.
0: And when you talk with people about this, do you feel like the people you turn onto it, All like when I when I I got it the night you told me about it (laughs) when went went out and found a copy and it's clearly uh it's clearly its own thing it's clearly like and that's what I love about especially about a first movie thinking about that time it seems like it totally fits in with all of those. Movies of that time, the sex lies and videotapes, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, all those Sundance movies that.
3: Out of sight. All,
0: yeah. Yeah. That just sort of, well, I mean, I guess that's probably maybe how Soderbergh was aware of him to put him in Out of Sight, which now I got to go back and yeah. watch his performance in that. Yeah. Uh, but so when you turn people onto this, do you find that people generally respond enthusiastically or have yeah. you got pushback on it?
3: Uh, I have found that people, some most people are like, oh, this is a great film. Some people are like, oh, it's a great film, but it's like misogynistic. And Wendell had talked about that a lot um, in terms of that, um, people who had that opinion of the film, even when it first came out. Um, but um, yeah, for the most part, it's enthusiastic. And people are like, oh my God, like it's just so original. It's so refreshing to watch something indie that's not like, just a rehash of of something that has been done on a bigger budget or it's so so refreshing to watch an indie film where someone's not trying to audition for a directing job in in a studio you know Um, and so and most people are like why have I not seen or heard of this movie before like why is this not because I never when I went to film school not that you're going to hear about every amazing movie in film school but like one there is a problem of like just white directors and their movies um, tend to be the only ones that are recommended in a lot of film schools in America. But um, even from among some of my black counterparts, uh, I don't think people have seen this movie. So I was just like, yo, this, it's just, it's just, uh, it's amazing. Right. And I'm just, um, As hard as it is for a black person to achieve anything in America, uh, let alone such a unique and dynamic uh, indie film, especially in the 80s, um, where everything was shot on film, so it wasn't like a cheap endeavor. It's not cheap now, but it definitely wasn't cheap back then. Um, It just blows me away, you know? Um, So, like, my goal is to keep talking about it. Even in the classes I teach, and um, it's ranked as one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, And yeah, so I just think like there needs to be more push on it because even though it's on Amazon right now, it's not like people are, uh, there's not like a lot of marketing behind it. It's just kind of up there, you know?
0: Well, we're doing our part at the World is Wrong podcast. (laughs) Where this is exactly the kind of this is why we need a podcast like this. I do want to ask you: Are you so? I've looked at his uh, at his uh, Wikipedia and uh, Wendell B. Harris Jr.'s, and he's mm-hmm. been worked. Do you know anything about the film that he's been working on supposedly for the last fourteen years?
3: Uh, well, I so I, in the interview he I remember reading that he said that basically after Sundance he took so many meetings right. Um... <clears throat> so many meetings and he was pitching um, to make another original movie and he was being pitched back to basically make remakes of stuff that the studios wanted to make. And he had mentioned something in the interview about the movie that he was trying to get off the ground. He didn't go into deep detail, but I'm sure that's the movie that Wikipedia is listing. And so I don't know exactly what it is. Uh, I'm sure if I, do, if I do a deep dive into all the interviews that he gave, I could probably find that information. Um, but it sounded like it was another like genre bending or mixing uh, film that was going to be unlike chameleon street, uh, in terms of genre and ideas, but like something completely way out there that he was like, yo, this would be the great follow-up." And people were just like, nah, it's too weird. And we don't think so. Right. So he just got shut out. And at this point he's 66 years old, you know? Um, and not that, you know, he can't make a movie now, but it's like, yeah. If we, everyone in, if everyone in Hollywood knows you've been pushing a, an an idea for a couple of decades, and no one's jumped on it, it's just weird thing where they're like, "Well, it must be not a good idea because no one said yes," um, which we you know that's stupid and false.
0: Yeah. Um, well, it it's called Arbiter Roswell. And it, at least according to Wikipedia, it's a 14 year mm. project chronicling the relationship between public opinion, the media and the military industrial complex, which oh, cool. I can see why <laughs> that would be a hard pitch. But I can also it's just like, yeah, that is the perfect follow up to yeah. to this to this movie. Yeah. It's just like it's, you know, I'm sure as a as a film professor, you hear Too many people talk about Orson Welles, but it's Mm -hmm. hard not to think about this. When I look at that, think about the Magnificent Ambersons factor of like, well, yeah, of course, the Mm -hmm. the first one is so good. The second one has to take even a bigger swing. And when I think that there's a possibility of there being a filmography that's Chameleon Street and Arbiter Roswell with this story of what it's taken to make those happen. Uh, yep. I'm just excited that the possibility of a successful podcast to drive more attention to this in a collection of other films, like this whole idea that this is one of many, you know, to potential. It's a first film, so it's hard to say it's a masterwork, right? But yeah. It's a work of such incredible potential. And what you're talking about is the loss of that in Mm -hmm. a career that like if he had been able to make to give to give listeners some idea, Sex, Lies and Videotape won the grand jury prize the year before. So if this director had been given the resources that Steven Soderbergh had been given, and we Mm -hmm. had had all of these films. Think how much richer the, you know, our film, you know, just film would be. And you can probably... And Steven Soderbergh is a a rough one because I think we can agree that he deserves those resources. But there are plenty of filmmakers between 1989 and now who did not... (laughs) yeah exactly and our job is is, not to tear them down but to say god god damn it Wendell B. Harris should have been able to make 8 or 10 or 15 or 20 films between then and now
3: yeah well this is this is a thing and you know I tell people this it's like again I was I was just like wow it's an amazing movie but I wasn't in the end I wasn't shocked as to why he didn't have a career and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna read a quote from Neely Fuller Jr. Neely Fuller Jr is an old black Southern wise man. He fought in the military. Uh, He he was served in the military and he has a very um, non bullshit approach for how black people can survive under the system of white supremacy. And he basically, and I'm going to tie this into why uh, I feel like chameleon street didn't get its due, but he says, if you don't understand white supremacy slash racism, everything that you do understand will only confuse you. And um, what I take from that is that if, first of all, if people can agree that the system of white supremacy is is a system that the world operates under, yeah. and it's not saying that because one is white, one is a white supremacist, that's not what it's saying, yeah. but the power, the power structures, right? Yeah. Um, and so in Hollywood, hmm. Occasional, uh, occasionally, like black films will fall through the cracks, right? Original black films that critique white supremacy and critique black life. And oh, that's amazing, but it won't find any commercial success because that's not what Hollywood is about. Right. You kind of have to fall into a certain narrative line if you want to succeed in Hollywood. And so um, it's very forgiving for um, white filmmakers, especially back then, white, you know, male directors, who are, you know, not denying their talent at all. We've done some amazing avant-garde stuff. But as a black person, if, you know, if the system's like, well, I don't know if I can get down with that or what he's saying is making me feel uncomfortable, we got to pretend as if we're all in, but then find subtle ways to, to kill it, right? And so, and you see that, you see that happened with the LA Rebellion. So LA Rebellion was basically... Uh, a group of filmmakers from UCLA film school um, uh, in the, in the seventies that made just some really powerful um, black cinema that just you could not put in a box. So you had uh, Charles Burnett, uh, Haley, uh, uh, Gerima, uh, Garima, uh, you had Julie Dash, you had Billy, uh, Billy Woodbury, um, you had Billy Gunn. And so you watch some of their films like Ganja and Hess or To Sleep With Anger, Killer Sheep, um, uh, uh, Bush Mama, I mean, you watch these films and you're just like, yo, the energy and the power in these movies that don't follow the Eurocentric three-act structure, that don't follow um, uh, typical cinematic uh, construction and language, but it's just like so real about the existence of being Black under white supremacy. And all those directors, I mean, Julie Dash finally, like because of Beyonce, Julie Dash is now working again in her 60s. But honestly, uh, Charles Burnett, his son, Jonathan, uh, graduated from LMU Film School. And I've met Mr. Burnett a few times. Who do you hear about when you think of black filmmakers? Spike Lee? uh, Maybe Tyler Perry, F. Gary Gray? uh, Antoine Fuqua? Spike Lee was the first. Spike Lee has been making movies for four decades.
0: consistently. John Singleton? John Singleton?
3: Well, yeah, Lee Daniels later. But basically, John Singleton um, Spike Lee, uh, the, um, uh, I mean, there's, there's a small list, right? Yeah. But yeah. everyone that I'm mentioning from the LA rebellion came before all of these filmmakers. Right. And put out some of the most original authentic content that one would love to believe they champion, but the truth is Hollywood doesn't. Right. So that's my point in bringing in that quote. I feel like chameleon street is a masterpiece in so many ways. Um, it has so much energy. It like just, it's like when you're in Chicago in the winter time and you have like 30 layers of clothes on and then you walk past the building and like this sharp blast of wind just cuts through all the clothes <laughs> and, and chills you out. That's what I feel about when I, when I watch chameleon street. Um, it is so just original and different. Um, and that's what, you know, I feel like black cinema has a potential to be constantly, um, but unfortunately, black cinema, at least the commercialization of it, in my opinion, performs um, uh, almost like a mystery act. Right? It's like black cinema with white, uh, white face basically. Right? It's like to make it more palatable to cross over into commercialization, you have to defang the blackness. Of your, of your art. And um, all the films <clears throat> that I love from Black American cinema had just such a sharpness, just a biting sharpness critique to them. They were entertaining but also just real and authentic and um, weren't predictable. And that's why I wanted to, you to watch Tukibuki from uh, Jabril uh, Diop Mambete who yeah. was a Senegalese filmmaker who only made two movies before he died of cancer, who also, he was a self-taught uh, filmmaker. He had never made a movie and just got um, some, I think the I think uh, Tukibuki was made for like 30,000 US back in the 70s. And no one really knew about it <clears throat> until Scorsese um, restored it.
0: Yeah, I was curious, because when I asked you if you were going to be talking about anything in relation to Chameleon Street and you recommended... Tukibuki and I, I watched yeah. it and uh, I, but I and there were, I, I felt, I felt some affinity between the two, but drawing mm-hmm. the, I was so curious to hear how you drew the connection between them.
3: Well, the, okay, so um, to me, Tukibuki is just, again, I felt floored when I watched it. To me, it's a cinematic poem. Right? There's tons yeah. of energy in that movie. It's yeah. raw. And in a lot of ways, I felt that same way about Chameleon Street. You know, you have uh, Wendell B. Harris playing, um, basically it's a biopic, right, of uh, of William Douglas. And it's like this black guy who has already been kind of determined to be worthless in this system of white supremacy in society, who's like, all right, well, if you see me as a criminal, I'm going to go with that, and just basically turns the system on its head, navigates, uh, pretends, to be all these different positions and plays a game better than the game itself succeeds until he's caught. But it also shows how, how black people have to do these mental gymnastics and, how and to survive, uh, the different ways that white supremacy can harm them. Right. And it, at the end, it's all, it's, it's fatalistic in a way, because in the end, um, the system is going to be there. You're not going to be able to beat it on your own. Right. And so when, when um, he gets caught in the end of Chameleon Street, you're like, okay, well, this is how it had to end. And for Tukibuki, you have basically po- post um uh, Senegal where you have these young this young couple who wants to they have these dreams of leaving uh, their country and going to, I believe, France. And um, it's going to be a better life for them. And they just, can't, they just can't do it. There's things that happen that just keeps them from doing it. And so it's kind of like when that movie first came out, I mean, it was panned by the Senegalese press. Like they hated the movie, right? They're like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, wh- what is this? Is this like repeated frames? Like it doesn't make any, editing weird. Um, and it w- went to Cannes in 73. <clears throat> um, and it won the International Critics Award. Um, but it really didn't help uh, Javril have a career. And it wasn't until like I think 20 years later that Scorsese restored the film and now people are just like, Oh my God, this movie amazing. You know? And so it's just kind of like a movie before it's time. And that's how I felt the connection between that and Chameleon Street. Not only was the energy there for both and just how raw and how, um, again, it broke all the cinematic storytelling norms. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just such a complete original film for a Senegalese filmmaker who had never made a movie before, who's kind of like self-taught autodidactic, to make something so brilliant. You have Wendell B. Harris who writes, directs, produced stars in his own movie. That, to me, that's brilliant as well. And again, it's like, you can't put these films in a box. They have the same type of energy. It's like, okay, um, wanting to escape both systems, whether it be colonialism or white supremacy, or escape the life that has been prescribed to you as a black person when you're born under these systems, but realizing like there's no escape. That's what I took from both the movies, right? Um, Tukubuki, they don't get to France. And one can say, well, yeah, because, you know, the place of Senegal is way better than what trying to lead that could ever be. But to me, it's like, well, you know, you kind of have no choice. Um, uh, you cannot escape at all. But it's tone us such. it's both movies to me are told in such a poetic way and that, that is what is missing from so much cinema not just black cinema but just cinema in general it's like um, I feel like a lot of cinema obviously in Hollywood is just remakes you know or regurgitated plots right um, but if we look at the indie cinema we don't have much of a strong indie cinema scene here because one it's so hard to get financing there's no governmental support like there is in other countries you know Um and Uh, we're just lacking, I don't know. It's just, I think people are afraid to like, my take is because we live under a system of capitalism, everything becomes commodified and for profit. Therefore, like the humanity and spiritualness of what art can be is ripped out of that because everyone's like, well, well, who's your audience? Um, What are projections? How are you going to make money off this movie? And it completely kills uh, the desire to make something just as art just to exist as art for someone hundred years from now to stumble upon it and be like, Oh my God, this is what they're thinking. 100. Like yeah. we have lost all that ability here, at least in America. And it's starting you're starting to see it in other um, countries, but it's like, that's, that's personally why I make movies. It's not to become rich or famous. Um, I mean, I'm not trying to take people's money, but like, ha ha, screw you. I'm not going to help. You know, I'm not going to try to get your money back, but that's not the first thing that I'm focusing on. It's like, what, is trying to be communicated in this medium of art. And um, I don't believe in like, well, who's your audience? My audience is me, right? Andre Tarkovsky, who's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, talked about how you make your film for yourself. Films that you want to see for yourself that is saying something, whether it's you're exercising some demons or you're trying to explore something that you're wrestling with. And then the people who are dealing with those same questions in life Will f- you will find those people, and they will be attracted to your work, and then that becomes your audience. But to to say, well, think of your audience first, and then write and make this movie, is so backwards. You know, I'm the first, most important person that I need to be. I need to be satisfying, scratching my itch first, and then I guarantee you, there's other people that have that same itch out in the world who will, um, you know, find. Um, I common an interest in the films that I make. That's what happened with The Sleeping Negro. It wasn't like, who's my audience for this? It was like, I need to work out some stuff in my life. And I want to do it through art.
0: Well, that's actually a good place to shift this because I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about *The Sleeping Negro*. It's uh, your newest film. You, you generously gave me a producer credit on it for uh, introducing you to a friend of mine who had a little little bit extra change on the side to, to <laughs> help with some post production. But and I'm super happy to be associated with it. But I'm not. I don't feel qualified to, to tell the tale. Why don't you tell our yeah. listeners where they can find this film if they can. Find find it yet and what they should be looking for when they yeah. seek it out.
3: All right. Well, uh, so far it's not out yet. Um, we've submitted it to about 10 big film festivals and we're waiting to hear back. Um, but basically, um, the movie what is, it's a story about a black man who has basically, um, kind of been asleep in his life in terms of how, what his positionality is in America and the world under the system of white supremacy and he wakes up and he just on his birthday he realizes like something has to change I can't continue to live in this angry frustrated alienated place that I find myself in all the time and so um, there's a series of like uh, incidents that he has one with an old friend he hadn't seen in five years an old black friend his white fiance, and then with his doppelganger himself, uh, also his boss. And so through these racial incidents, he is searching and struggling to rediscover his own humanity. Um, But it's a critique on a lot of things. For me, it's the frustration of just being black under a system of white supremacy. um, Even if you are able to have some type of socially mobile um, movement, Meaning, like, you know, you're middle class or upper class. Um, It's understanding that understanding the system that you live under and how it's never going to be your friend. Um, Understanding that, you know, in order for a system to change, it takes a a community of people willing to make changes and willing to fight for change. That, to me, is, is radical versus individuals looking to exploit and manipulate the current system for their own personal gain, to me, which is is what we deal with mostly, mainly here in America. Um, and so it's just a very angry film. And it's um, – but it's also – there's a lot of surrealism, right? Because for me, you know, I'm very much a pessimist in, in theory in terms of what I think – how I think – subconsciously, blackness is viewed and all the anti-blackness in the world. But I'm also optimistic about what changes can happen, right? To me, black people can only achieve what the white imagination will allow them to achieve. And so I always try to, in my work, just try to think of ways to kind of blow up the pessimistic side of myself, but also the binary, um, thinking that we have in this country is left or right or whatever, Republican Democrat, um, and think outside of those, those norms artistically with film and live in this area of existentialism. So it's a mixture of all that stuff. Right. And so, you know, it's like, it doesn't pander to any group or any person, but it's just an honest, um, what would I call it? It's an honest, um, poem of alienation and anger with moments of like, okay, maybe <clears throat> existentialism and surrealism could be a place where we explore more for some type of liberation. I mean, he's trying to liberate himself from this feeling and it's hard, right? It's a hard feeling because you're born into the system and you're part of the American culture. Um, but the truth is you're neither African, you're neither American exists in this otherworldly place and so the film tries to explore that as, as best as possible mm-hmm. uh, in the way that I think it does best as possible so it's a very um, it's a hard film to watch for some people um, it's an intense film it's 82 minutes so it doesn't you know it goes by I think pretty quick but it's an honest film and I try to You know, when I made the movie, I disregarded everything that I had been taught in film school and everything that I'd seen. And this is why I love Tukibuki so much, because I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. Taking a camera and just making what's what you feel is art in your heart. And not even worrying about the freaking market or worrying about, well, I didn't plant and pay off that crop properly or I didn't, you know, resolve the third it's so stupid to think that way, but we've been conditioned that way because of capitalism. Everything is has to be a profit, right? So if you're not doing it for a profit, why are you doing it? it Does't make any sense? Um, well, you know, that's it, how people think sometimes
0: and kind of bringing this back to Chameleon Street, it does feel like now that I'm thinking about them, and maybe I should have thought about this before, but now that I'm thinking about them together. I feel a little bit of the DNA. It's a very different film, The, uh, mm-hmm. the Sleeping Negro, but something about what they're re- the characters are wrestling with. And I don't know, just some... Uh, yeah, I do feel like there's a kinship between them that is not just, oh, you know, they're films by black filmmakers. There's a certain tone of... Um, Well, it's one of the things that I love about Chameleon Street is that Wendell B. Harris's performance is so arrogant in the sort of Mm -hmm. William F. Buckley kind of like. So when he's talking on TV, I almost feel like at first I thought he was doing sort of a, a William F. Buckley impression. This sort of like, I'm just I'm just going to run intellectual circles around everyone that I talk to and yeah. and yeah. that <laughs> loping into like just pure like oh there's not a sneer in it but it's the sneer's right there on all of it and I'm not saying yeah. that that's your character but it is no, yeah. it's an yeah. angry intellectual this is what i'm saying then you cannot take the black out of it, but you can definitely see it. And I watch both of these films. I think of them as angry intellectual films about Mm -hmm. in your case and in his case, blackness, but it could be an angry intellectual film about that's really where I, where I, my doorway in is like, Oh, I get what it's like to feel smarter than all these people who have control over every aspect of your life. And you can't get like, you can't, make yourself any dumber than you are. You are stuck being as, (laughs) like, as insightful as you are. And when you are to that situation, well, you make a movie like either of these two movies, it seems like. Well,
3: well, I think Million Streets is a very interior film, right? And I, I feel that way about The Sleeping Negro. I mean, it's a very, you're with this character and you're watching them navigate the best way they can their life and the system they've been born into um, and then there's a critique there's a philosophical critique in Chameleon Streets through the dialogue and how the character like, like when he was called a nigger um, in the bar scene and then he and he goes and he talks about the, 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 how to use the proper use of the word fuck
0: <laughs> well, he, he basically does Cyrano that's what I love yeah exactly Is he exactly, just yeah. You're right. Yep. I, it's one of. Yeah. It's one of so many scenes in the film that yep. are, just. Well, again, the world was wrong about this one. It,
3: yeah. It's mm-hmm.
0: you know it's a, moments of painful comedy.
3: Yep, and and the thing is, there's so many people who try to do this um, in the mainstream, but they have to water it down because no one will buy their movies, and so I just love it because the man. You know, someone's like, well, you know, it's sad. He should have made more. But at least we got this one. Yeah. And I think it will go down as one of the greatest black American films uh, of all time because I think, like, it's funny, it's philosophical, um, it's, it's like, surreal in some mm-hmm. ways. It's stylish. Yep. Um, it's, and it's honest. And he basically, and this is another reason why I love it so much is because, I'm about to do a biopic of a man who was lynched and I'm going to do it in such a way that biopics have never been done before. But chameleon shoots a biopic. And if you watch catch me, if you can, that's a straightforward biopic of another con artist, but it's kind of told in a chronological way to me, it doesn't have as much bite. Oh Chameleon no,
0: not it's you know there are ways you could view it and it would be good, but as someone who grew up reading that book and was looking forward to that movie for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, if it had felt like Chameleon Street. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? Like if yeah. that if Catch Me If You Can it felt like this, I would have I'd be singing a different tune.
3: Yeah. So that's the thing. It's like, it's just, um, it's a shame, but I'm glad that he was able to make this. And if I had money, I I don't care if he was 80, if he still wanted to make the second film, I'd be like, here, here's all the money you need. Um, but it has, it's like, it's a movie that has so much swag, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And he had to jump through hoops. to get financing for that movie, never made the money back, but, um, it's just, yeah, there's so many good things. Um, so when we were editing the Sleepy Negro, I made some of the crew members uh, watch this movie um, because I was like, "We're gonna let's attempt to do something that is just so different that no one can put it into any type of category." And um, that was way before the racial uprising that happened this year. So you know, if people who are in positions of power or power structures are down for the calls then they'll start to uh open the door and then get out of the way and let people do what they got to do you know um i'm in the i'm in the process i'm going to probably be starting this uh phd program um next semester and i'm going to be doing such a deep dive into what i think black cinema can be based off films like the *Tokyo Buki, Killing Street, and others, there's not, you know, there's other films that I feel like purposely were ignored because it didn't fit into uh, the mainstream, but to me that are great. And I feel like films should be following those ways of filmmaking versus just the same boring, redundant ways that films are being made nowadays, right?
0: Well, Skinner, I think... You know, I I think this. I think you should have a film podcast.
3: Well, let me let me just give the audience just a couple of. Films okay, yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, I'm, I will, okay. hey, if you want to if you want to share it, that's that wherever, Get out your pencils and uh, pencils <laughs> and paper, kids. Here we go. So,
3: one film. Uh, he's one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. His name is Mohammed Saleh Harun. He's a Chadian filmmaker who moved to Paris, France, I believe, in eighty two. in his twenties. He's made seven amazing feature films, but one of his one of uh, my favorites is a movie called A Screaming Man. A Screaming Man. So check that one out. Um Tukibuki is up there. I would also look at um uh Kwa K W A W Ansa A N S A W. Uh it's called Love Brewed in the African Pot. Um and also, let's see, there's another one called Sugarcane Alley by I'm gonna I am going i can never use on It's uh, she's an amazing filmmaker. A U Z H A N P A L C Y. so check that one out. And then again, Charles Burnett to Sleep with Anger. Uh, one of my favorites from Billy Woodbury um, is uh, Bless her Little Hearts. Maybe the only one he made. Bless her little hearts is great the spook who set by the door by Ivan Dixon. Oh, you gotta see, you gotta see this film. It's called watermelon man. Melvin Van peoples oh. made it in the seventies for Columbia pictures. Yeah. So surprising that it got made back then, but watch that. It's great. And then two more Spencer William, uh, was a great black filmmaker, uh, along with Oscar Michaud, uh, he had a movie called the blood of Jesus, which is on Amazon and then within our gates, which is a feature film that I think it was made in 1920 by Oscar Michelle. Um, but essentially from 1915 up until like 1950, you had Oscar Michelle Spencer Williams and only a couple others making black movies. And then you had nothing. Yeah. You know, yeah. White filmmakers making black all black cast films. And then you have black exploitation in the sixties and seventies and then Spike Lee's in the eighties. Right. So to me, it's like Jim Crow era, civil rights era, and then post civil rights era. Those are the three eras that I kind of break it up into. Um, but yeah, so go check out some of those. Um, there's obviously a ton more out there, but there really is a, a reach, a rich um, group of films from the black can- black cinema canon and I'm hoping to do my my part in the future to like let people know about them because um, uh, there's so much that people are missing out on, so much richness.
4: Hey y'all, it's Amy from the Pink Among Men podcast. I know, you are really, really busy with your sourdough starter and your fourth rewatch of The Office, so it's totally cool if you don't have time for an informative, perspective-bending podcast right now. But if you do have a few minutes to spare in your jam-packed schedule, I want to offer Pink Among Men for your consideration. Think Among Men is a weekly conversation on different perspectives, gender, and marginalization in the creative community. We chat with actors from shows you watch, directors who make movies that you want to watch, and comedians from stand-up shows that you'll probably never watch, but you should. Every Wednesday, they sit down to talk about the tragedy and the triumph that comes with not being a white dude in arts and entertainment. You probably don't have time for it, but maybe subscribe so you can listen when you're a little less busy. Get Pink Among Men on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're a proud member of the Paper House Network.
0: You know, we don't like, we don't like lists like, uh, you know, like best of lists, top 10 lists, but we are... You know, you're the guy who wrote, who co-wrote Destroy All Movies. You are a guy who likes to make long lists yeah. of things. And when I saw in this movie that there was the Scorpion and the Frog story, I thought, God damn it, that's in so many movies. I'm so sick of hearing that story. But then I was like, wait, it's 1989 <laughs> when this movie is telling us the story. What? what? And like, I know it was in The Crying Game, but that's 1992. Yeah. And then I looked it up and it was like, oh, yeah, it was definitely, it was in Mr. Arcaden. Yeah. The uh, the 1955 Orson Welles film. Yeah. Which is a really uh, unique and interesting film on, on its own. And so then I looked it up and before, so then the next films that are at least listed on IMDB, where you, uh, a link you sent me to, that it's listed as being in are in, uh, Blake Edwards' Skin Deep from 1989 and, and an episode of MacGyver called Unfinished Business from 1989. Yeah. But since Chameleon Street, again, as an independent film, I feel like was probably just being worked on for longer. Definitely. I'm going to give Chameleon Street the the edge and say yeah. that that was the first film To feature, unless, and again, hey, if you're out there and you are a fan of this show and you can correct us, you can be like, oh, well, there's this film from 1967 where Robert Vaughn tells the story of the... (laughs) It's totally going to be Robert Vaughn. (laughs) (laughs) Then... <laughs> then please correct us we would I'd love to be corrected but as it is right now it looks like it's Mr Arcaden or Arkadin, or how are you pronounce his name even his name is a mystery that's ghost <laughs> if you if you like the film that's part of his charm mm-hmm. then the next one is Chameleon Street and in then you have a flourish like I guess these people were at Sundance they were like Blake Edwards was at Sundance, and whoever wrote that MacGyver episode was at Sundance. Like, <laughs> Holy crap. You can use that speech from that film that we. And most people had it actually been very hard to see Mr. Arcaden in America yeah, in yeah. the 60s and 70s. Yeah. So it's not like it was out there. So yeah. when Chameleon Street. Puts it in the movie. It is the first time people are seeing this story in a film, and it's it's winning the, the award at Sundance. So I feel like that film kicked off the what is now serious <laughs> overusage of that, uh, yeah, that story. It should be outlawed. I think, but I, like- I think at this point. Okay, go on. I like
2: the way that you do it in this movie, though, because it's not just somebody, like in most all movies except for this one, it's just somebody you sit and watch someone tell the entire three minute story that you already know. But I like how it's like it's over the end credits of this movie, and you're cutting to different types of people, very different ages, different races, different genders, each kind of building to tell you the story. And I think that's a great way. And everybody's telling their little moment a little differently. And that's much more interesting than just watching, you know, some somebody just tell it to you, the whole thing.
0: <laughs> well, and I, it, what makes me think that this was intended from the beginning is that a lot of the characters are in their wardrobe. Mm-hmm. And you just have to think that with an independent first feature like this, what he did was at the end of every day yeah. with his actors, he put them up against a black screen and said, tell the story. Yeah. And then at the end, he cuts them all together. Yeah, and it is awesome. It's yeah. a great. It's a great bring back. Like it's so sad. You look at the IMDb list and of who's in this film, and it's it lists like 10, 10 or twelve actors. And then you look at the credits on the film, and it's like seventy actors. Yeah, it's like they list so many people. Like there's the secretary who has who does the weird poetry yeah uh, and I was looking her up and I could and she was very hard to find. she's not like and I don't have her name listed and i'm I'm sorry, I'm not gonna go back and but uh, uh no, it's it's a it was a whole rabbit. It was very hard to find out who she was because she's not listed on IMDB yeah. anyway, so uh I thought it'd be fun. Slash uh, an opportunity to just hammer home how overused this is to to talk about some of the other times that this <laughs> that this story has been used. Yeah. Well, what was the first time you remember hearing this story in a film?
2: Um, I it's just one of those ones I've always known. I think honestly it, it was Skin Deep because I'm a, a Blake Edwards obsessive, and in that movie it's really funny because it's John Ritter in therapy. And it's this therapist being like, well, here's your problem. Let me tell you the story. Basically equating John Ritter's character to the scorpion. And then John Ritter's response is like, I'm going to punch you in the fucking face (laughs) for telling me that (laughs) story. I think the therapist actually says, I know what you're thinking. You want to punch me? You want to punch me in the face? Like you want to tell me off? Uh, And that was the first time I heard it. And then of course, I think it was the crying game because it's in the crying game. And... Those are the two that I remember. But I feel like IMDb only lists, like it lists an episode of How I Met Your Mother, uh, the the movie Drive, which I don't remember in that at all. But he has a scorpion on his jacket, I think, in that movie. Is that right? Does that seem right? He's got some animal on his jacket. Maybe it was a scorpion. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, you know, an episode of House of Lies called I'm a Motherfucking Scorpion, That's Why,
0: which is great. Um, <laughs> And it's like... I... When you have... T- I just think when you have TV shows that it's the title of the show. When you have two TV shows that it's yeah. the title of the show. Yeah. I think it's it's at the point when someone should... It's, it should be yada, yada, yada. Like someone's <laughs> like, you know the story of the scorpion. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 the yeah, scorpion. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> but I know I've definitely heard it in other movies. I just can't remember. Like that aren't these. Because I've known it enough. And I feel like once a year I see it pop up in something. And I haven't seen more than half of these things on this list. So I don't think IMDb is even accurate in telling me like where this fits in, you know. Like,
0: it doesn't even have Chameleon Street, and it doesn't have like that, the most recent uh, season of Umbrella Academy. I was watching that, and one of the characters whipped out the speech, and I was just like, <laughs> "How lazy do you have to be as a writer <laughs> to have to literally have a character?" It's like. How about you just? How about you have one of them deliver the Sermon on the Mount or the I Have a Dream speech? Or it's just or like, like having a like,
2: comedian just constantly do the Why the Chicken Cross the Road, and you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not accusing Wendell B. Harrison, this because he was the first guy post- No, no, Orson no, Wells that's what I'm saying. To bring it back. And like you said, he probably never even saw Mr. Arcaden, because that movie was kind of really hard to find until it was on DVD. So I think he just- Although, I think- a, like, no,
0: Maybe in film school? I think that's I think that is part of his I think that's another one of his references. He references Cyrano de Bergerac. Yeah. He references Oscar Wilde. He re- references Cocteau. Yeah. There's I didn't mention it but there's a scene when he's walking into Cocteau and in the background there's some graffiti that has Woody Allen yeah. in the graffiti and I feel like the Woody Allenness of this movie yeah. is so I think that's something that maybe that's one of the ways the world is wrong about it that maybe they just of course, the blackness of the film is very much there, but I think that maybe it's the the intellectual quality that is actually more difficult. Like, you know, Woody Allen is very rare, and you know, he was a successful comedian. He had a lot of things going for him when he was able to, and he plays this sort of intellectual stereotype, so he gets to play it as a joke. But... Making smart films is not, uh, you know, it's not a way to get successful in Hollywood.
2: <laughs> Sad, sadly, no.
0: <laughs> you know, unless you're very lucky, you know, and even then, you got to dumb it down. We were talking before we got on the line about *Knives Out*, a film we both love. Wouldn't you say that that's an example of like a film that's found a way to do something, du- sort of, to do something dumb in a really smart way? But yeah, he's not. It's not a smart movie. In the sense that, like, it demands anything of you, yeah. Other than your, you know, you're the price of admission. You, it takes you, it delivers, it it ta- delivers you to from point A to point B to the end of the movie without asking you to like see anything you haven't seen before, except that it's done in a new and better way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whereas I feel like, yeah, Chameleon Street is is not is a different kind of you know hard it's a hard kind of film that american american filmmakers or distributors have not been the kindest to in general yeah. so well there's if you look it up there aren't enough podcasts covering this film so i'd like to encourage if you feel like we didn't give it its entire due you know Go out and do this yourselves, other film (laughs) podcasters. Let's let's get more people being aware of Chameleon Street. Yeah,
2: seek seek it out wherever you can find it in this day and age.
0: It'd be great to see Wendell B. Harris get to make at least one more film. Yeah, that's the most. That would be the best possible outcome that we could contribute to is the sense that hey, you know what, this guy deserves to have the other. Part of this story, and get to make another movie. And uh, yeah,
2: if, if Orson Welles can still make movies after his death, then why can't this guy, while he's alive, make one more movie? Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Come, you, you Imagine. And uh, I'm gonna have to. Let the, I'm gonna have to let the the cat out of the bag. Let, let people behind the curtain here. Brian, are you okay with this? Okay. Uh, you know we record these episodes back to back, two at a time. And so what I want to be able to say is, oh, I loved the episode of Apocalypse Now, the director's wall episode of Apocalypse Now, (laughs) because I know I will have loved it. I will have listened to it all three hours, but I haven't because we're recording this right after we recorded the U.S. Go Home (laughs) episode. And I'm still agitated and annoyed that I haven't had a chance that you you dropped it on me right before we recorded it. I'm not even going to be able to go and edit this. I'm going to have to go in for a three hour bike ride listening to you guys get drunk and talk about Apocalypse Now. But listeners will not have that problem. They could pause this right now and go to the director's wall and check it out. By now, you're probably on to other, you know, other couple of films. But uh, tell us, give us some insight that you didn't tell us about in US Go Home. Some little, some cute little tidbit, <laughs> little piece of, little nugget of well, information. The,
2: the tie into our show and the other show we did together, uh, Steve McQueen was originally going to play the Martin Sheen character. It was offered to him first, which is very weird. Like, I don't know how that would have worked. Wow. But that was who he was offered. And then Al Pacino. It was offered, and it would have been brando and pacino again at the end of the movie and pacino was like i know how this is gonna go frank like i'm gonna be in the jungle for years and you're gonna be tell me what to do and i'm gonna be miserable and he was right that would have been what it was like and so lucky for al pacino he didn't make this and instead made cruising or whatever (laughs) so like (laughs) interesting tip but please listen to it it's the longest episode of the directors all we've done like it's so long it's like early uh, World is Wrong length episode. Like, that's how long it is.
0: <laughs>
2: it's like I was going to say, hour tour. Did,
0: in the same way that uh, Vincent Gallo felt empowered to just run excessively long takes for the run of a whole song (laughs) by Claire Denis where did you feel similarly empowered to put out a three hour long apocalypse now (laughs) episode after our three and a half hour mad dog time?
2: I think that podcasts need to be longer. Like what, what's there's no rules like this. We're in a lawless land here with podcasts. So like let's have an eight hour long podcast someday. Let's let's go crazy. Why not? If it's interesting enough to make it work, then go for it. Don't cut it out and cut it down if you don't have to. Like, we're all patient listening to this while we're doing something else or jogging or whatever.
0: Well, that's certainly been the case with this episode. Um, we This is definitely one of our longer ones. We now we've added in the interview. Yeah. You know, my, uh, my, my girlfriend, who shares your birthday, by the way, which is... Virgos, unite! <laughs> She's used to the very long... You know the hour plus sometimes two hour long episodes of the Radio Eight Ball podcast, and she when she was listening to our Mordecai episode, she was like, "Wow, these are these ones are these episodes are a little short. It's like an <laughs> hour long. It's an hour long show." I know we got it. So you're right. We yes. can we can give them more. I think we can. I think we can always. I know. I'm I'm never. when there's a podcast with people talking about a movie I like, I'm never like if it's good. Oh, they're done talking about what's up, Doc. Yeah. No, keep talking about what's up, doc.
2: <laughs> I've never seen a what's minute up, by doc. Minute. So I want to hear people talk Shut about up. it. Shut up! No,
0: how is that possible?
2: I did. Do,
0: like, uh, <laughs> I don't like Ryan O'Neill. I don't like Ryan I'm. A, I agree with you. I, bl- you know what? I we are we're in total like we don't want to go down the road of things where the world is wrong about that are <laughs> negative. But we are in agreement there. <laughs> like, but <laughs> wait, but you still like Barry Lyndon?
2: Yeah, but the thing the thing is like he works that's the only movie i like him in because he is used like in the way that is correctly of like you are playing a character that is supposed to be this blank slate not like the whiteness of a uh, ryan o'neill the, you know like the way he is like this kind of empty vessel is very very kubrick and it works for that whereas if i'm supposed to be charmed by him and barbara streisand I'll be charmed by Barbara Streisand. I won't be charmed by Ryan O'Neal. Well, you know what? That's
0: what, actually the I, I as someone who has who feels very similarly, uh I'm going to say I think What's Up Doc will will surprise you because he he does work in this. She just bowls him over. Yeah. Like he's a rag doll to her talent and just charisma throughout the film. It is not uh yeah, don't don't let please don't let Ryan O'Neill stop you from enjoying. What's <laughs> You know What's what? Up,
2: I'll, I'll watch it before the next episode, and you can ask me on the next episode uh, how I. Feel I just like it. it's
0: such a you movie. It's all the the slapstick and the Blake Edwardsness. And I the, know. Okay. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> I was trying to give you the uh, the end to talk about uh, Radio Eight Ball. <laughs> yes. And so anyways we got caught up talking none- about movies. <laughs> surprise, surprise.
2: So yes, you can follow Andras on Radio Eight Ball. And he had Skinner Myers as a guest on that a few years back. Uh, Can you tell us about what that episode was like?
0: Well, you know, on Radio 8 Ball, what we do is we answer questions by picking songs at random and uh, interpreting them like musical tarot cards. We call this uh, conducting musical divinations or consulting the pop oracle. And on that episode, we had a fantastic band from Los Angeles called Feisty Heart, uh, which were just a man and a woman, and between the two of them, they play bass, drums, guitar, and both sing vocals. Uh, One of them plays bass and drums and sings, and one of them sings and plays guitar and writes the songs. And they were there uh, providing the what we call the Oracle Fodder, the songs which were the answers to the musical divinations. And we had Skinner Myers in to talk about his film Frank Embry, a short film that he had uh, just put out at the time. And it turned out that both of them, there was a synchronicity that they were both from, had lived in the same town in Kentucky, Feisty Heart and Skinner Myers, and they were all meeting in L.A., And, of course, Skinner had a question about racism and we were able to go into this really challenging topic and what I remember about it was that at the heart of the synchronicity was this recognition that they were all from the same little town. They weren't all from the same little town, but they had all spent enough time in the same little town to have this moment of just shared, like, whoa. That's crazy. You're you know that uh, you know that oh you know that like and that you know it's just like when you meet someone who's from Olympia I guess yeah. who spent some time in Olympia it's like a college town and it's not like you never meet someone from there but when you or I run into someone when we're not, like if I meet someone in L.A. or you meet someone in Austin who's from Olympia there's that moment where you can you know drop some names and have people be like oh yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> I know that. So I once, it was really sweet. And that's... <laughs> Go on. I once ran into someone from Olympia
2: in Japan by total random. And it was just very strange. And it was just that thing of just like, we just somehow knew and we just talked about it. And we're like, oh, this band. And oh, this like, oh, that street. And I lived in that punk house. And, it was, and he lived in the same house that I'd lived in. Like, which was very weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so our next episode is going to be uh, the forgotten, hated ignored tried to be swept under the rug uh james bond film never say never again wow so i'm excited because it's going to be because i think this episode that episode be coming out around the time the new daniel craig movie is and this was the sean connery comeback that nobody wanted including sean connery but i love it and i'm excited to kind of get into it
0: now if people are gonna watch that, do you feel like it's important to also watch Octopussy, which came out the same year, so that you? Because are we gonna be talking, doing a lot of compare and contrast? You
2: know what? You, they should watch Octopussy because it was the same year, and then you should also watch Thunderbolt because Never See Never Again is just another version of Thunderbolt. So you, get, you got you got some homework, everybody. You got three movies to
0: watch. And uh, so, just <laughs> to bring it back to what we were saying earlier. Uh, <laughs> If you, if, you found, if you found there to be too much misogyny in Chameleon Street, you may want to skip this next episode because we are going into James Bond territory. And uh, I don't want to say that James Bond invented cinematic uh, misogyny, but I will say that when I got into James Bond as a 12 or 13-year-old kid, my mother, my feminist mother, was very, very disappointed. <laughs>
2: Well, we will definitely probably end up talking about it at some part of the episode for sure. It's inescapable, especially the further back you go in the James Bond movies. Like, they've kind of corrected it more. Well, you know, let's save it for the episode.
0: Yeah, yeah, let's save it <laughs> for the episode. No, let's just episode. record
2: another two hours. Right? Let's just keep going. <laughs> no, let's all take a break. Let's all have a week off. And, never uh, say <laughs> never,
0: Brian. Never say never again. <laughs> and uh just want to make sure we give a quick big thanks to our new uh network paperhouse network and we'll, of course you probably hear the ads we're playing for our fellow uh network podcasts and of course i also want to encourage you if you'd like to reach out to us please reach out to us through the radio eight ball i mean through the World is Wrong podcast uh, website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can contact us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com, and you are invited to follow our Instagram account, which is at theworldiswrongpodcast. Brian administers that with a great deal of gusto, <laughs> s- providing lots of cool clips and pictures from the films that we are we dig into and uh, unless you have anything else to say Brian? No that's it's great thanks for listening then until next time just remember that uh, wherever you are the world is wrong and it's probably wrong about you
1: that night in bed I suddenly realized she hadn't mentioned money once she was finally accepting the fact that Money wasn't everything, and even if it was, I didn't have any. Babe. Hmm? What? Can you see my eyes moving under my eyelids? Yes, I can. Babe. What? If you act real nice, I'll let you kiss my booty. Promises, promises. Mmm. Mm, babe, your socks are kicking. Kicking? Kicking with what? With odor. Oh. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The
0: Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.